that again. This is our second Sunday in a series that we're calling This Is Us. It's an exploration of our values, Elam's values. Why are we talking about values? Well, first because they define what is especially important to us. And secondly, because they help shape our behavior. Our values define what's important, they shape our behavior. Last week, Graham led us in the, first, the exploration of the first value, which is we love God. And today we're going to look at the second, which is we love people. We might also say it this way. Uh, because we love people, we value the relationships in which God has placed us. Relationships by themselves really aren't the key. People, that's the key. And because we love people, we value the relationships that we have. Now, as I thought about this business of loving people, I was reminded of the odd occasion, very odd, when I've watched an award show on television, and a winner would stand before the audience with their trophy or their Academy Award and say, I love you! And I'd think to myself, what in the world does that mean? How can you say I love you to a room full of people when you only know a very small percentage of the people in that room? What does it mean? You may remember this line from The Princess Bride. I do not think that word means what you think it means. What do we mean when we say that we love people? What does that word love mean? We want to be careful as a church to love the way that the word is used by the Holy Spirit and was used by the Holy Spirit when he guided the writing of the Bible. In other words, we want the word love to mean for us what it means to God. The challenge before us this morning is to learn to love people as God, our Creator and Father, wants us to. Let's begin this exploration with two foundational principles. First, loving people is not an option. It's a divine command. It's God's value. Let's sample some of the biblical passages, starting with Leviticus in the Old Testament. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Then there are Jesus' very clear instructions. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Then there's the teaching of the apostles. Peter wrote, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul wrote, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 
But Paul tells us to stay out of debt because debt is a dangerous trap. With one exception, we need to embrace the debt of love that we have for one another. Simply put, we owe it to each other to love one another. The Apostle John had the most to say, and he used some very strong language. We hear this, and Jesus has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. The message is plain and clear. We are commanded to love people, not things, not ideas, not groups. We're to love individuals who are created in God's image, not the world, not mankind, individuals. Theologian and cartoonist Charles Schultz understood this and understood how hard it was sometimes. It's easier to love mankind than it is individuals. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. I think that's Linus who said that. But this is not what God wants from us. He wants us to love people. That's the first foundational principle in this exploration. The second principle is that we need to keep in mind that loving people begins with a choice not a feeling. If we wait for the feelings of love to come along, we'll not get very far in our obedience to God's command that we love people. And many of us have grown up thinking that love is primary. In a marriage workshop that I participated in about 50 years ago, I heard this definition of love, and I thought it was really cute. I thought it was from a theologian. It was actually from a comedian. Uh, Love is a feeling you feel when you're about to feel a feeling that you've never felt before. How's that for a definition of love? There are all kinds of emotions wrapped up in love. Some are enormously joyful. Others are somewhat painful. But this is true. If we wait for warm, fuzzy feelings until we love someone, Probably not going to get there. Loving is a choice reflected in action. The implication of this is simple, though the actual practice can be quite difficult. The bottom line is we don't wait till we feel loving. We simply begin to act in loving ways. Let's go back to Jesus' words and do our best to answer two questions. Who should we focus on loving? And the second question is, How does this love work? How does it function? What does it look like? Who should we love? Jesus identified at least three groups of people. First, we are called to love our neighbors. Echoes a command in Leviticus 17. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as you love yourself, for I am the Lord your God. We clearly see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. A teacher of the law came to Jesus to test him and said, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing it was a test, answered the question with a question. What is written in the law? He responded, quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Sound theology actually embraces our first two values, love God, 
love people. Jesus said, yes, that's the right answer. But the man wasn't satisfied. He said, and I think he said this not now to test Jesus, but out of deep longing, who is my neighbor? That's an excellent question for us to consider. If I'm to love my neighbor, I need to determine who is my neighbor. Well, isn't it obvious? My neighbor lives next door to me. He lives on my street. My neighbor lives in my neighborhood. Well, that's true, and it's a good starting point. Yet the word neighbor is much broader than that. And in Jesus' teaching, it includes the people that God brings into our life. But not just any person that God brings into our life. Let's think about the story. A man was walking on that road between Jericho and Jerusalem. It was a dangerous road. It was a rugged road. Uh, The man was beaten and robbed. Uh, Many years ago, I don't remember, Wendy, whether it was at a a retreat or in a Sunday school class or where it was, but we were talking with some kids about this parable, and and the question was put forward, "What, what do you learn from this parable? And there was one young man in the group who was a remarkable young man. He said, well, if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you better run. That's not a bad answer, but not the best theological answer. He's robbed and beaten. Now, two religious people came along. One was a Levite. The other was a priest. They saw the man. They walked on by. Then a Samaritan came along. He stopped, got off his donkey, bandaged the man's wounds, gave him something to drink, put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, said, take care of him till I get back. I'll pay you for any expenses that are necessary. Take care of his recuperation. And then Jesus asked this question to the man. Which of these three was a neighbor to that man? And he rightly said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus replied, go and do likewise. We're called to our love to love our neighbor, who in the language of the parable is someone God brings into our life somehow and is someone who needs our help. That's our neighbor, someone who needs our help. The Good Samaritan's neighbor was the man who needed his assistance. Ironically, in daily living, those two men would have been enemies because Jews and Samaritans would have nothing to do with each other. Now, we can't love everyone in Winnipeg. We can't begin to meet everyone's needs. But when we see one individual in need, and we have the resources to help meet that need, then we can get down to the business of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, by giving them aid in their circumstances. It seems to me that Jesus wants us to love our neighbors by treating the needy neighbor as we would wish to be treated if we were in a similar state of need. Elam does this as a church, especially with our food bank. And Graham mentioned we need food, so I'm sure you'll all respond. Thanks to those who contribute food. Thanks to those of you who show up around 8.30 on Sunday morning. I'm trying to see where you are. and distribute the food. It's not just about groceries. I've watched our people, and they know many of these folks that come to our door by name, and they talk to them about their lives. It's relationship, and it's wonderful. 
Justina, Rachel, Bobby, Henry, and others. They're loving these people as individuals created in the image of God. To love our neighbor as ourself is to keep our eyes open to see a person in need, be it a stranger who God places in our path or our actual next-door neighbor who we've known for years, and then we use the resources given to us by God to serve and meet that need as best we can. Where do we start? We start with prayer. We start by saying, Father, open my eyes to see that person who you want me to be a neighbor for. Open my eyes to see the person in need and give me the ability to meet that need with the resources you give me. Ah, that's the first group. Love our neighbors. Second group told us that Jesus told us to love are our enemies. He stated this very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. G.K. Chesterton had this comment. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they're generally the same people. Well, he may be right about that. But fortunately for most of us, that's not true. But it can be. And it's been true in our history. Jesus wants us to love our enemies by praying for them and serving them. There is transforming power in this. The power to transform us and the power to transform our enemies as well. The third group Jesus tells us to love are Christians, the one another's in our readings, the body of Christ visible on earth as the church. Elam, we're the body of Christ visible on earth on this street corner. Better understand this, let's focus our attention on the instructions Jesus gave to his 12 disciples that evening in the upper room before his betrayal, before his arrest. These words are so important that John gives five chapters to recording these words. These are Jesus' last instructions. He emphasized in those words his command that we love one another. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And then in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. It's clear from these verses that we should love one another the way Jesus loved us and loves us still. Now I want to look for a few minutes at this question. What did Jesus' love for his disciples look like in that upper room the night he was betrayed? First, Jesus served them. Acting as one of the lowest servants in the household, he took off his garment, wrapped a towel around him, and went around and washed their feet. The second way he loved them, and for me this is even more profound, he spoke truthfully to them. They weren't easy truths to hear. 
especially for Judas and Peter. He told him, Judas, you'll betray me. Peter, you'll deny me three times. To the rest of them, he said, you're going to run away and leave me. This was no exercise in fortune-telling. I believe Jesus was lovingly giving them a chance to reshape the writing of the script. Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. The Sanhedrin could find many ways to apprehend him. Judas could have repented and said, no, I'm not going to do that. Peter could have steeled himself with Jesus' warning and said, no, I'm not going to deny him. The disciples could have heard Jesus' words and say, well, no, let's not do that. Let's stay with him. Jesus gave them a chance. He spoke truthfully to them in love so that they might change. Third loving action was dying for them and dying for us. Now, in the bit of time we have remaining, let's consider how we can better love each other as Jesus has loved us. First, we take on the attitude of a servant, looking for ways to serve each other within this congregation as part of the body of Christ. Not really different from loving our neighbors. We look at people in our own church and say, Lord, show, us how, show me how I can serve these people that are around me. Are they lonely? Maybe I can call them. Maybe I can write them a note. Maybe we can go out for coffee. Are they frightened? Are they worried about their health? Are they worried about their job? Maybe I can pray for that, and maybe I can talk to them and encourage them. Do they need any sort of help? A ride? A lift? I could do that. Secondly, we speak truthfully to each other. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus, the Ephesian letter, said, speak the truth in love. And the reason for that was so that we would grow in maturity and become like Jesus. It means that we've got to be very careful with our conversations. And I believe it starts with being truthful about ourselves. I was in a Bible study, uh, I'm sorry, a prayer meeting, early morning prayer meeting, many years ago with a bunch of really godly men from our church. And and one of those men one morning said, you know, I, I need to ask for your help. What do you need? He said, I have a problem with pornography. Never would have expected that out of his mouth. He's speaking truthfully. And we were able to pray for him. Over a long time, we prayed for him. Because some things are hard to wrestle with. But you know what that truthful speaking did for the rest of us? It opened us up to begin to be truthful about ourselves. And to pray for each other in more powerful and meaningful ways. Now, is there ever a time when we need to speak truthfully to a brother or a sister in our church about what we perceive as an area of sin or spiritual danger? Yes, but no. Yes, if we can do so in love and compassion. Roughly 50 years ago, I read something written by a Christian who was alive around the time of the American Civil War. And he was very active in the abolitionist movement. He wanted to see black people set free from slavery. He was so vocal about it and such a a well-known figure that there were many death threats against his life. He was also very involved in Christian education. He was the president of Christian colleges. 
And when I was in seminary, I, I found a document, and I, I, it was a photocopy of a document from the archives at one college. And, I, and I'm going to have to tell you what it said from my own faulty memory. But this is the gist of what he said. I will never confront a brother or sister about their sin till I have wept over that sin as if it were my sin. Wow. Weep over that sin as if it was my sin and then talk to my brother, my sister in love about the perceived danger. Compassion and love. Thirdly, Jesus died for us. It's hard for us to imagine a situation in which we would have to die for each other. But it might happen. We might have to take some big risk for one another. Certainly believers around the world today are having to do that. For us, the challenge right now is to love each other as best we can. Seeking when, when possible to treat the needs and concerns as if they were our own. One way we can move in that direction is to resist anything that would leave us with broken relationships. Differing opinions about things, different positions, or even conflicts. Tomorrow's election day. I bet within our congregation, every political tribe and party in this country will get voted for by someone from this congregation. And some of us would look at that vote and say, oh, that's a dumb vote. We have different opinions about who's the better party, who's the better candidate. That's good. It's all right. But let us never let those kinds of differences fracture our relationships. We have different opinions about a lot of things in this world. We dare not let those differences fracture our relationships. We want to be a fellowship where differences of opinion do not make a difference. Our unity is not based on having the same opinions about things. I grew up in the, in the American South primarily. And, and in my day, there were churches that were all Republican. You're Republican, you went to that church. There were churches all the Democrats went to. And if you were a Democrat, you went to that church. And then we moved to another state, and much to my profound amazement, in this church, there were Republicans and Democrats, and I thought, I didn't know it worked that way. But it does in the body of Christ. I want to tell you one of what may be my favorite Elam story. We've, we've been here, what, almost 18 years, 16 years, 17 years. I, uh, this was from a time about 10 year, years ago when I was briefly the interim pastor here, and I was part of the elders board then. And we had a meeting of the elders where there were some strong words spoken, some areas of keen disagreement, to say the least, and some anger. And then a couple of weeks later, I was leading communion from up here, and I was inviting people to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I saw one elder stand up, not making a scene of himself, but moving over to that other elder and sitting next to him and having a conversation. I don't know what words were said. It's none of my business. But I recognized that that brother was making sure that things were right with that brother 
before he met with other brothers and sisters at the table of the Lord. Because that's the way it's supposed to be in the body of Christ. We're supposed to have right relationships. Now I want to close with the Apostle John's warning to us. They're strong words, but they have to be taken very seriously. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Okay, so far, so good. Easy. We all buy that. Here comes the hard part. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. If we are lacking in love for one another, even if it's only one person that we struggle with, we need to make that a matter of prayer and repentance and confession and healing for us. Because that is a big warning sign. And finally, with this, I do close. (laughs) I think I said that a couple of times. Um, We're living in an an increasingly post-Christian culture. People don't know what Christianity is all about anymore. It's up to us to show them. And the way that we show them begins with loving each other and then loving the neighbors around us. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you love the church, and you love the neighbors. Let us pray. Lord, we do want to be a beacon of light in our city, reflecting who you are by virtue of our love for one another and our love for our neighbors. Help us to continue to become that kind of church that loves people and that values people because, values relationships with people because we love those people. Make us effective for your kingdom's sake and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.